Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musical storytellers. Presented by Spitfire Audio. I'm Kenny Holmes. I am Robert Kraft. This is Score the Podcast presented by Spitfire Audio. We're off and running after a big season premiere. And here we go. Episode two. Saying hello, as always, to to composer Carol. Good morning, Carol. Good morning. You guys ready? Are you caffeinated? We have another big one here. I would say if you look up over-caffeinated in the dictionary, they have a full-page picture of me. How about you? You're the coffee man. I actually haven't had my coffee today yet, so that's you guys incredible. might have to carry I'm this I'm having one. mine. I think um, that's, a, that's a headline right there. It, it really is. Um, okay, I have a trivia question for Shoot. you. Who, please name the most Oscar-winning music, musical person living right now. Oh, living, because I was going to say I know non-living. Oscar-nominated or winning? Oscar-winning. Who has the most Oscars of a living musical person today? Well, there, first of all, there's going to be, a, I mean, of course, I was going to say Maestro John Williams, but when you say musical person, it makes me think. It's not John Williams. Is it composer Carol? Is it me? It is not you. <laughs> or is it our, the, our guest today? The answer Perhaps? is our guest today, oh, Mr. Alan Mankin, mm. eight-time Oscar-winning composer and songwriter i was i thought it would have been john williams but when i looked it up the the only person that has more oscars than alan Menken in the musical sense is al alfred newman correct david so, newman's father and tom that's Newman's correct. father. so on today's show is uh, an icon uh he's a composer he's a songwriter for so many of the greatest animated films first off i mean he's the the disney savior uh, when in terms of animation uh, with music, films like Little Mermaid, uh, Aladdin, Pocahontas, Hercules, Beauty and the Beast, and and then all the non Disney stuff as well. One of your favorites, Robert, uh, Newsies. Oh, love Newsies. Um, so anyway, Alan is you know who Alan is at this point if you're listening to the show, I think. But um, we are so excited to have him on because. We, we've been trying to get him on for a couple of seasons and some scheduling things didn't work out, but he's got the new Little Mermaid live action coming up. So we're going to be able to talk to him about that, working with Lin-Manuel Miranda. Uh, and then mm-hmm. also he recently had the live action Aladdin come out with, with Will Smith and doing that whole thing. So he's, it's kind of interesting, Robert, right? I mean, he, he went through this wave of these massive hit films and now they're kind of redoing them all not in the same order, but but th- this is an interesting experiment. Where, where do you stand on all of this stuff with the remakes and the live action? I think that, first of all, there's obviously a commercial angle. Disney just knows how to extend the brand of all these different mm-hmm. movies and not only sequels, but live action and all that. I also think... It's sort of a wonderful opportunity for Alan to revisit his work, I'm guessing, and we can find out when we talk to him. And also, maybe in each one of them, there's going to be a new song or two. So yeah. he has to come back to some narrative issues that maybe weren't addressed. That sounds really official. 
Um, <laughs> and uh, listen, God bless them all. There's, I think the world probably needs a few more Little Mermaids and Beauty and the Beast and things that make people so happy. You can tell. We asked if people had favorite Alan Menken movies and scores. Mm, and mm-hmm. in the score all over mailbox. The and it was just so many of them came back. You thought, this guy's really entertained the world. So yeah, makes me happy. Well, and plus you worked with him on Little Mermaid. I sure uh, did. All those years ago. And what, I think it's been 30 years since that film. Just Well, just since 30 I'm 31 years. years old, I did start. I was in diapers <laughs> when I went down to record plant on Sycamore to do that. Wow. Yeah, it's been 30 plus years. And I had no idea what I was getting into. I got a call from Chris Montan, the head of music at Disney, asking if I'd be interested in producing these two guys. Alan Menken and Howard Ashman uh, with this musical they had at Disney. And it was sort of, I guess, yeah, it's work. Boy, and I, we've talked about how this was a time when it was a rebirth of Disney, right? Because th- before Little Mermaid, it wasn't this big, huge, anticipated, what's the next Disney musical movie that's coming out? And, and when these guys showed up on the scene... Everything changed moving forward. Absolutely revolutionized what and who Disney was. It was 86, I believe. And um, it was the first of a new era that now is, you know, ginormous Disney. But It was a whole new world? Yeah, it's a whole new world. I would say it is a whole new world that is somewhere under the sea with a hunchback. <laughs> uh, so anyway, Alan Mankin joining the show in just a bit, and we're really excited about him. Um, by the way, Robert, I'm wearing the T-shirt you gave me for my birthday, and so if there's any problems today, just read this uh, manual on my shirt. Happy belated we'll birthday, in Kenny. Post. Thank you. Yes. We'll fix it in post. I told Robert I would wear it on, uh, on this week's episode. I am so. so happy. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> Uh, before we get to um, the show here, uh, we want to take a second to thank our sponsor, Spitfire Audio, maker of orchestral sample libraries for film composers. Whether you're just starting out or a seasoned professional, Spitfire has so many sounds you will love. Did you know that they release a new library in their free lab series every month? And I download them i mean it's a great freebie and they're always really cool you can get an entire orchestra for free in the form of their bbc symphony orchestra discover edition yeah and those are on top of the free stuff uh we they they have a ton of different packages um and we have a promo code that we're going to share with you at the end of this episode you're going to hear a demo from their latest abbey abbey road one release it's called wondrous flutes and this package features fast flowing and fun. That's really fun to say. Thanks for that script, Ben. Fast flowing and fun. Fast flowing and fun. Uh, and piccolo performances, flute and piccolo form- performances with dazzling legato patches. Wondrous flutes has been captured within the cinematic acoustics of Abbey Road Studios, Studio One, by London's first call session players. So, all the best players playing these sounds 
And uh, these pre-orchestrated patches give you instant access to an immediately recognizable sound as heard in some of the great scores recorded there in Abbey Road 1, uh, Studio 1, like John Williams scores, John Powell, a lot of those uh, Star Wars uh, sounds that you're familiar with. Those are the types of sounds you're going to hear in these packages. I can't deny that whenever I think about Studio One, I get slightly happy Mm -hmm. because Studio One is just one of the great places, if you love film music, to just walk into that space. It makes you joyful knowing what has been recorded in that room. Plus, you can feel the energy. This is a secret I'd like to share with our score listeners. There's a couch upstairs that if you've flown overnight from L.A. and you have to make a 10 o'clock session at Abbey Road 1, and at 10, the downbeat starts and everybody seems to be fairly organized and it's going great, and Isabel Griffiths, the great contractor, has everything under control, you can sneak upstairs to that couch and just say you're going to close your eyes for a minute because you've been on a plane all night. And then about one o'clock, someone gently shakes you and says, lunch. <laughs> so it's a, it's a well-known secret that that's a, that's a an Los Angeles to London tradition. That's a, that, that area, by the way, gives me nightmares because I think I've shared this before, but if, if you haven't heard the story, when we were shooting Score, the documentary there, we were setting all of our stuff up and we had uh, the conversion plugs and everything for our lighting. And right before Mission Impossible was going to start recording, we blew the circuit in Studio One. And uh, we had about six engineers up there. They came up faster than an ambulance. Oh, what's going on? Well, this is the sector that the, the power went out. And we're like, oh, no. And uh, so from then on, that was like our, it was like, never plug anything in in any of these places until you check with somebody. Wow, um, good so, to know. They that couch, I, I'm, I had the opposite effect. I needed to be resuscitated on that couch after, uh, after that bet. incident. I actually um, arrived, and then we'll get back to our score of the podcast, but I arrived once for some scoring date at Abbey Road, and they got started. And, you know, you fly overnight, you'd land at Heathrow at like 6.30 in the morning, have a coffee, get in a cab, go right to Abbey Road, and they'd be ready to go at 10. You could do it. Um, and you always thought ambitiously, I can handle this. I'll go through the first day and then I'll go to sleep at night. Well, that couch was there. And once I went upstairs to that couch after it had gotten started just to see, and they had put yellow tape, like a police line over it. And it said <laughs> on above it, hold for Robert Kraft. They knew my secret sneaking out there. <laughs> Did you know that score listeners that our podcast listeners can save 25% off their first purchase of any Spitfire audio product. You just have to be able to tell one of these Abbey Road stories and use the promo code SCORE2021. That's all one word, SCORE2021. You get for that use of the promo code 25% off. That's huge. Yeah, and then once again, listen for that demo at the end of the show today and use the promo code if you want to purchase any of those uh, packages as a first-time purchaser of Spitfire products. Save 25% from us to you. We're so glad to bring that to you. Um, Robert, we have uh, something to bring back. We, we didn't do it last week, but that's the wrong button. Where's my noise? That's what we're going to bring back? There it is. 
There it is, the return of the mailbox. It is breaking news, though. It is breaking news. Thank you. Uh, we have a, a message here from Aaron Daniel Jacob, and he has a question about representation. Uh, hi, Kenny and Robert, longtime fan, first-time emailer. How imperative is it for a media composer to have an agent or manager to help them find jobs? I'm just breaking into making some money, writing music for TV. I have no agent, and all my jobs come from connections I've made from former clients who want, me, want to use me again or recommend me to someone else. This seems to be the norm for a lot of folks, but I've heard but I've heard of an equal amount of composers who rely heavily on their representation for their next gig. So what are the benefits and disadvantages of having or not having representation? It's a fabulous question. Aaron, Daniel, Jacob, you have three first names, so I guess you can move them around all the time. Um, but I'll call you ADJ for now. And I'm going to, ADJ. I'm going to tell you that you have asked a wonderful question and one that is the great riddle of anyone in the entertainment business as a performer, creator, writer, actor, musician, which is how do I get work without an agent? How do I get an agent without work? So mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you that you've answered the question in your question. You say, I get most of my work, and thank you and congratulations for doing this all on your own, through word of mouth. Here's my question for you, because you've asked the question yourself. What happens if I am producing something, and I'm watching my small screen at home, and I hear something I really like, and I look it up, and it's Aaron Daniel Jacob composed the music? I don't know you. I don't have anybody to ask word of mouth. I want to find you. What do I do? Well, the first thing I would do as a producer in Hollywood or in New York or in London is I'd go to IMDB and I'd go to your page and I'd look for your contact info and I would hope for my sake, not for yours, but for mine, that you're represented by someone I know and deal with. Because then there's a shorthand I can have, which is I can call up one of the agents or agencies and say it says here you represent this person um what do they like to charge what can you tell me more about them um would they be available would they be interested this would be in place of me calling you directly which would be uncomfortable as your career expands because the last thing i want to do is negotiate with you. In other words, what would it be like if I wanted Alexander Desplat to score my next movie? Do you think I would call, and God bless you, Aaron, that you become <laughs> the next Alexander Desplat, but you can see where I'm going here, which is as your career expands, having an agent is going to be extremely necessary because, number one, it gives you complete cred. If your agent is one of the agents that producers deal with or studios deal with you're instantly in a new club which is oh yep. you're part of a crew that that i understand and i can walk the walk and talk the talk with these representatives we know what to ask i don't want to call you let's say i find your cell phone from a friend of a friend of a friend or i track you down hey man what do you charge 
Well, you have to now say, uh, well, I, I really don't know. Depends what, you know, no agent would negotiate like that. And are you available? Well, I'm not sure. I, I don't want to have that conversation with you. I want to call your representative, say, here's the budget. Can he do it for this? Can he do it for that? Is he available in May? Is he available in November? Yes or no, in or out, let's go. And your agent hopefully will say, yes, he's available. Yes, he's affordable. Isn't it possible too, if let's say using the Alexander Desplat uh, example, someone calls and says, we want Desplat to score this movie. And they say, boy, that's way out of your budget. But on on our roster is Aaron Daniel Jacob, who is a hot up and comer. He has a great sound. He can do those types of despla sounds that you like. Um, let let's let let him do up a little demo here and show you what he can do. And maybe that's the way uh, Aaron Daniel Jacob gets his first sort of big budget feature. Is he's a little bit less expensive than uh, despla. Absolutely correct. In other words, there's kind of a major league. All yeah. the teams that are major league. Yeah, I always like sports is the best way. Everybody else. Yep. Yeah. If I run to find you, I'm going to go to look at the rosters of the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Padres. The we could go through all 32 teams. If you're not on one of those, it's a little bit of well, you're a really good player, I hear, but I don't yeah. know where to find you. By the way, I'll end my soliloquy about why agents are important this way. Can you tell me one major composer who doesn't have an agent? Call me when right. you find that answer. I can tell you that John Barry, for a minute, used his lawyer, but then came back to an agent. Uh, yep. John Barry, rest in peace. So there is that occasional, but he's John Barry. I mean, you go see Out of Africa or James Bond and you want to reach John Barry, well, you just figure out who knows him. But... The My tough question seems to be when to get the agent. As soon as that, one it's says It's the chicken to you. or the egg thing. Yeah. yeah. As soon as someone one reaches out to you and says, I want to be your agent, it's probably a good time to be an agent. Correct. To have and they will reach out to you when you have some things happening. That Excellent. is our score, the mailbox answer for the day. Yes. Aaron Daniel Jacob, thanks for that question. If you have a question for the show, you can email us at scorethemailbox at epicleft.com, E-P-I-C-L-E-F-F.com. We'll try to answer your question on the show or uh, on Twitter or Facebook if uh, you have those uh, ways of connecting with us as well. We can do it like that. Um, I do want to mention too, don't forget to subscribe to more score. If you haven't done so already, we already have a ton of our listeners who have joined and it's a lot of fun. We have, uh, exclusive interviews that aren't on the show here at score the podcast. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we had Carlos Rafael Rivera from the Queens gambit. Uh, most recently we had Fernando Arroyo Lascarain, who is a studio musician, uh, here in Hollywood and also happens to be the composer of blockbuster Matt's, uh, podcast. And uh, Fernando had some great, great insight on the orchestra, the working orchestra uh, in, during recording sessions on the stage. Um, so, you know, you may know about the orchestras in general, but uh, it's, it's a different working beast behind closed doors in those sessions. And he opens the curtain, peels the curtain back for us 
And uh, here's a little clip I'm going to play you of him talking about playing in scoring sessions, cold reading music that gives you goosebumps and trying to play impossible cues composers have written. I've played some scores where, you know, we'll have a quarter note, like a hundred for like this. And they want us to play two octave run in one beat. Impossible. It's not going to happen, you know? There's just what do you, fingers kind of move that fast. What do you do if something's not possible? Have you been in a session where something literally can't time. be done, and then what, what happens? Yeah, it is, seems does it like that actually <laughs> that probably happens. We a make lot, it happen with composers. But it's how do you professional faking? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll show you. So, if I have a fast string scale, let's say even if it's an octave, let's say A flat major, right? Right, and I'm playing it, kind of playing all the notes. But if it's faster than that, I might go. You just so you get the same effect, it. but it's kind of I'm sort of skipping some notes. Such a cool conversation. Uh, you guys got to go check it out. More score on Patreon. It's an exclusive place for bonus episodes. We have uh, hangouts with the crew, and there's also exclusive merchandise. There's a really sweet coffee mug on there, and an exclusive T-shirt. Um, so don't miss out if you want more score. That's literally what it is. Uh, it's going to be year round too. So when the season ends for score, the podcast here, more score continues on Robert, you got some stuff I know you're working on and really excited about more score. Go check that out on Patreon today. And, uh, do we have anything else to get to before we get to Alan Mankin? I think we need to get right into a whole new world. Oh, this is amazing. Had to bring that back. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's time then. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, eight-time Oscar-winning composer Alan Menken joins the show. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Matt Schrader here. If you like Score the Podcast, you're going to want to check out More Score, our new Patreon show for Score superfans. What's Patreon? Well, it's a website and an app that lets fans crowdfund the type of extra content you want. And now, More Score has it all on video. You can listen or watch right on the Patreon app. More Score already has the life stories of people you know, like Kenny and Robert from Score the Podcast, as well as bonus features, hangouts, and yes, original interviews, like Carlos Rafael Rivera from The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. Did you know he had to throw out his score and start fresh? More Score gives you insight into the film score world, and it's a beautiful addition to those of you who just can't wait for another episode of Score the Podcast. Best of all, More Score is year-round. No more off-season. Go to patreon.com slash morescore or download the Patreon app and search More Score. Hello, this is Pinar Toprak. You're listening to Score the Podcast. Now let's go back to the show. Welcome back to Score the Podcast, presented by Spitfire Audio. What a huge guest for our show today. He's a legendary songwriter and composer. Check this out. Eight Oscars, 11 Grammys, seven Golden Globes, a Tony, and most recently an Emmy in 2022, which gave him the E in EGOT, making him only the 16th person to join the exclusive club of EGOT status. Alan Mankin joining the show today. A particular treat for me, of course, because we go way back, but it's just wonderful. Alan, I think 
when I first met you, none of the things that Kenny just read off had occurred. So it's really amazing to hear that list. And I can actually say that really shop-worn cliche. I knew him when. I yes, and I knew you. I I knew you when. I I remember your first album cover and, and walking oh on the street. God. Remember those those pants? Do you get something yeah. for EGOT status? Do you get a card? Do you get like no reservations at all <laughs> restaurants? Like there's only 16 people in the world with that status. Do they give you anything for that? I, th- I think you get like a CVS coupon of some kind. You know, um, nice. they're long. <laughs> those long receipts. Yeah, you get your uh, your your agent Richard Kraft stopping complaining about it. So that's a that's a big plus. Wow, that's um, huge. Because for years he was saying he was saying. One more, and you got the ego. I said, I- I'm fine. He said, Oh, one more, and you got the ego. I said, Okay, but I, 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 oh, you should have the ego. So, I have to, but he said it enough. I, I, got, I began to go. Okay, I should have the, the ego. If I'm not mistaken, was it the daytime Emmy adding the E? Was that the the? Yes, yes, and I, the Twitter cross was the, was the daytime Emmy. We had actually Howard Howard Ashman and I had actually gotten an honorary Emmy all the way back actually i think maybe before any of the other awards for a song that roy disney asked us to write um which was a uh an anti-drug uh song uh, called a million wild and wonderful ways to say no which given my background was a little ironic but um <laughs> um so it's always an honorary one but now you got the real deal i actually remember Roy Disney coming into the record plant when we were working on Little Mermaid, staring at a computer synthesizer. A, you know, it was like the DX7 without the keyboards. So it was just a lot of blinking lights. And he looked at it right. and he said, for, the, for some reason, he said, do you have a tuba in that thing? <laughs> I, I don't know why Roy Disney would be concerned, but uh, Alan, it was it was so great. I mean, I know we wanted to talk about all your films, but I said to Kenny and Carol before we started that I just wanted to mention to Alan the most surprising fact of everything he's written. I was incredibly moved by, for personal reasons, Newsies, which... Oh Which wow! I know that everyone must acclaim all the other things, but I heard the song "King of New York." I went with my mother to see the film, and I thought it's one of the three songs in the world that I wish I'd written. It just nailed oh. it, and I thought, "Thank you." Uh, I just, and Santa Fe, I always love that score. And I know everyone talks about all your other work, but Newsies went unheralded. Of course, it came back as a Broadway hit. I won my Tony film, for it. I know. You won your Tony for it. But the and film, for whatever reason. I got my Razzie Award for, for, for Newsies. The yeah. film? Yeah, worst song of the year. The no night way. I won. I, I found that the night I won the, uh, the two Oscars for beauty, I was back in the press room and they said, how does it feel to w- win the song for worst song of the year? And I thought it was a joke. I was like, ah, <laughs> bad joke. He said, no, no, no. You won the Razzie award for worst song. And that was for the song. Hi. Um, 
Uh, high times, hard times. High times, hard. Great. You know, remember, remember, uh, uh, and Margaret on the swing. So let me let me reintroduce you then. The Regot winner, Alan Mankin, joining the show. Regot, a Razzie. And, uh, <laughs> let's go back. Let's go back because, um, you know, a lot of us know your story, but we kind of want to dive in a little bit. So you were you were born in Manhattan. Is that correct? Correct. So you you were just surrounded by Broadway. Um, were you were you in a musical family? Were, was your family involved in musicals or plays, well, or what? What drew you to that? No, um, they weren't professionally involved. They were passionately involved as fans. My father and all the men in my family, as I've said many times, were dentists. Every single one of them. My grandfather was a dentist. My father's father. My father was a dentist. My father's brother was a orthodontist. My Mother's sister's husband was a dentist. My father's sister's husband was a dentist. They wow. was just like went on and on. Dentist, dentist. Um, so, but my dad would love to sit at the piano and play. And my mother was an actress and writer, um, but and a dentist's wife in New Rochelle. And that primarily what she did was, you know, be a great mom. And but she but she would work. And they were very um, involved with, you know. Uh, entertainment business i guess in terms of being fans um and i was just i was one of those kids who was born just wanting to make music it was just clearly in my blood and um i remember and from the earliest time just being attached to music and then i remember i said you know when fantasia came out and there was these great images with this great classical music then then images and music became married in my brain i think um and i really was not good at anything else i was so add i was a horrible student like said how am i going to be a dentist i mean i <laughs> i have to be a dentist I, I think how do i do this and then um thank god i found a way to not be a dentist did you jump into piano lessons at an early age um was your were your parents okay with that or were they saying why aren't you learning what a cavity is oh more than okay well yes they were in fact saying alan is practicing for an hour but he's not learning the piece uh, the teacher would say alan's not learning the pieces but said but he's playing it for that for an hour and i had to admit i was learning the beginning of a beethoven sonata and then i would make up my own because i got bored and i also didn't like having to read somebody else's notes apparently oh i love hearing that did you write i mean in other words was writing and thinking of your own songs an early instinct it was but i didn't know what it was i thought i was all i thought i was doing was just faking it you know that, <laughs> that was good enough for, <laughs> at my at that age it was good enough for me i'm just like okay you know no it's, it's easy i'm, I'm just sorry so as someone tried to FaceTime me, I, I I don't know how to turn on Do Not Disturb on this. I'm sorry, guys. This is the world we live in, Alan. I think everyone's gone through this. Yep. Okay, that was Glenn. That, that was that was the great Glenn Slater calling me, my lyricist, because we have a meeting on a project, and supposedly he was, he was supposed to deliver a new lyric this morning, but it never came. Uh-oh. So uh, we were talking about, um, I guess, how I developed... 
you know, that are Fantasia and these and the visuals and And you said you thought when you were writing songs at the beginning, you weren't really aware you were writing songs. You were, said you were kind of like faking. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I did not. I, I, no, no kid thinks that actually making music is a viable way to make a living. If your, if your father was a lawyer or a doctor or a, you know, t teacher or whatever, you go, I'm going to make music, and they go, Yeah, great, right. Um, and I still pinch myself that. You know, mm. it worked. <laughs> At what point did um, you did you start to take it like really serious? Though I mean, everyone. I think I played viola in elementary school, and then it kind of phased out. But. At what point do you take the next step and you think like, wow, I'm really good at this or I should pursue this as, as something? Well, to be honest, when every other option was <laughs> either too, too unappealing or, or not, not doable, um, I, I went to college as a pre-med um, wow. and did not last more than you know, a couple of classes because I just was not – you know, the people who were really – driven were driven and i was not plus it was those years i went to, i started college in 1967 so pretty much those were the years when we were all counterculture or many of us were and i was very counterculture um i grew up as a kid with a peptic ulcer i was very tense so you know the 60s late 60s were kind of a boon to my nervous system it was like hey let's party um <laughs> And, um, but after college, it's like, okay, I got to make a living now. Whoops. Um, the first thing I did was like, well, I had my old classical repertoire and I'm good at faking music. So I began to play for ballet and dance classes all over the city. I uh, wrote a rock ballet and I met a ballet dancer named Janice Roswick, who I've now been married to for nearly 50 years. I joined Bravo. a workshop. I think workshop. that deserves some applause. Um, Thank you. That's so great. Was she in the rock ballet by any chance? Yes. Oh, she nice. walked into the room and I and I was like, "Oh my god. This is it was like totally I, I must know this 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 girl." Um and uh I joined this BMI musical theater workshop and, Layman Angle. um with Layman Angle. And remember, I, the, as, the first day I walk in, there's also, my, you know, someone who become a dear friend of mine, Maury Eston, mm. um, was there. He was a graduate student at Yale um, at the time. And, of course, Maury then, you know, became, he's a writer of Nine and Titanic and the, the state musical Titanic um, and many other wonderful musicals. But I did, from that point on, I just said, I'm... No matter what happens, this is what I'm going to do with my life. I was writing jingles, um, and I became a part of that scene. Uh, I was playing in clubs at the ballroom, and you know me, you remember the clubs, ballroom, Tramps, Reno Sweeney, um, uh, Snafu. <laughs> um, not, I wasn't quite at CBGB level, but I remember Snafu. Um, and I was just play making music you know, in any way possible. Um, but to appease my parents, I, that workshop was vital to me. Um, and somehow the marriage of the, you know, the classical music I grew up with and the pop music that we all, you know, be, inculcated ourselves with 
and the structure of musical theater um, and my genuine gen general nature as a chameleon kind of where I, you know, I, I'm, I'm able to take on musical style and just kind of have fun with it and, and make it my own. Um, that led to me finding a voice in musical theater that became um, huge for me. I think you just answered a question, which is, you know, was pop or rock or being a kind of solo artist or a recording artist, a lane that was yes. interesting to you or was yes. musical theater it? Yes. No, it was interesting. Look, I, when I saw your album cover, Robert, <laughs> I was jealous. <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted to record an album, but I was Janice. I, I put one married. Um, I was working on musicals. I didn't want to do the tour thing. Uh, that it, it always felt exhausting to me. And, I, and for years, I struggled with that. Well, I should make an album. And I, in fact, had a deal with um, Columbia Records then, you know, now Sony, um, to, to, to make an album. And I just kept putting it off and putting it off, and putting it off because I had other projects. And I, didn't, I knew I had to support it with a campaign of performing. And I just didn't want to put some time aside to do that. It's, it's so difficult. Um, and I actually found my greatest asset in allowing my voice to come through characters and mm. through stories and through situations and have it not be about what is Alan Menken feeling in his heart or thinking. And, and also, I went from being a composer lyricist to being a composer, you know, 90% of the time, a composer with other lyricists and a lot of other lyricists. Um, and that was so liberating, um, to have a lyricist like Howard Ashman or Stephen Schwartz or Tim Rice or David Zippel or Glenn Slater, Jack Feldman. He's incredibly talented. People. I have a list here. I actually made, uh, Lynn Ahrens even made, made the list and, and Pasek and Paul. I mean, you've been certainly collaborated with. Yeah. Lynn Miranda. Tremendous talent. If I can recommend to our listeners to go watch the Howard uh, documentary on Disney Plus, which really tells a great story about you and Howard. But for those that haven't seen it, can you tell us a little bit about how you and Howard Ashman, um, the great lyricist, sure, sure. came to be a, a, a dynamic duo in Hollywood? Well, first we were a dynamic duo off, 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 off Broadway. I went to that show, by the way. Which one? Rosewater? I was jealous of you. See, it all comes back. Little shop of horrors. No, I saw I saw oh, that right. on Second oh, again, Avenue. My manager took yeah. me. He said you could be doing something like this, at, and we went to the Orpheum to see it. And here we are, Je jealous of each other. And here we yeah. are. I um <laughs> um yeah. I I was a exclusively a composer lyricist, and I get a call from actually from Maury Yeston. I'll I'll do my Maury impression. Alan, it's Maury. There's <laughs> uh, this guy. How there's this guy Howard Ashman. Who uh, um, uh, is has the rights to do a Vonnegut novel, but, but he wants to write the lyrics as, as well. I, would you be interested? I said, well, sure. You know, I'll help him out. Why not? I'll meet with him. So I met with Howard. Howard also had a theater, the WPA theater that he was artistic director of, um, and that was a huge, you know, step up. Um, and I, I was a big Vonnegut fan. So yes, make a long story short. Howard and I got together then and wrote God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. 
um, which was a success to Steam. It it got a good review in the New York Times, but it mm-hmm. it it was had one problem. It was a off Broadway show with a cast of fourteen, and the, mm-hmm. it just can't price it out. It would have to move to Broadway, but it didn't have that Broadway sensibility. And Howard said, "Okay, next show is going to be no more than nine characters." Uh, um, and with some sort of a device in the middle of it that's really attention catching. And he always had this idea of <laughs> the Corman movie, The Little Shop of Horrors. And so, yes, with, with Little Shop of Horrors and that, you know, Muppet man eating plant, we had our breakthrough. And, um, and when Little Shop was produced, we had, the, we had a general manager, Albert Poland, who wanted to help us find our producers in New York. Those producers were the Schubert organization. In London, it was Cameron McIntosh. And in Los Angeles, it was David Geffen. That was the same group of people who had done Cats, and they came together to produce Little Shop. Fast forward, flash forward, Jeffrey Katzenberg and Michael Eisner then are coming, and they are now running Disney. And they're looking for who is a person who can help us figure out how to incorporate music into our into, yeah, a new generation of music into our movies. And I'm sure, I'm sure Jeffrey spoke to David Geffen who said, get Howard Ashman. Um, at that time, Howard and I actually were working with different people. He was working with Marvin Hamlish on a smile, on a movie called, on a musical called Smile. I was working with Tom Ian who had written Dreamgirls on a, on a musical called Kicks. So for me, the big headline was, oh, I'm gonna get to work with Howard again, yay. You know our our follow up to Little Shop of Horrors, and it was uh, of course Little Mermaid, um, and it was yeah I think it was through probably through David Geffen that Howard brought me out to um, to work on Mermaid. We had the experience with Little Shop of Horrors when it was became a film um, that I remember we got a nomination for best score for Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, Golden Globes I said, "Wow, and who? It's great, yeah, but it's not you. It's a wonderful writer, uh, Miles Goodman. Miles Goodman had written basically eight minutes of a musical sort of transition, <laughs> um, and I wasn't eligible because everything I had written had been written for the stage. So when it came time." Um, we did, however, get a best song nomination, which was, you know, for Oscar, which was great for Mean Green Mother. But when it came time to do Little Mermaid, Howard said, you have to write the score. Um, <laughs> and I said, I don't know how to write a score. He said, well, you'll figure it out. And thank- that's never stopped any Hollywood film. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and, um, Chris Montan and uh, helped set me up with um, an orchestrator, Thomas Pazettieri, who also understood how to use was this thing called the Knudsen book, I remember, which was because you you work with actual clicks, not beats per minute, and all of that technique about how it would work. Um, and so I struggled to learn how I was working with the DHS tapes, and I remember Simpty. Code with that that audible code that we had that was <laughs> um, that would drive the, the the MIDI and the uh, on the movie together. And at some point in that process, I'm looking at 
I'm doing it. I'm playing what I what I wrote, you know, on the page with the Newton numbers, and I were playing it to hear it. And at some point, it occurred to me, duh, <laughs> I could just be writing directly to the video. Um, and just going beats per minute, and so that's Alan. There's a there's a common thread here in this story, and it, and it comes up so much with film composers that we talk to, and it's it's that you had no idea what you were doing on your first movie. Were you telling people you didn't know what you were doing? Yeah, yes, <laughs> and and well, I I mean, like because it was a a musical, meaning song driven, I knew what I was doing. I just didn't know a couple of things. I didn't know the techniques of how you do it. Um, and I didn't know if what I was, what was writing as essentially what would be interstitial music for a stage production would be appropriate for a film. What I began doing with little mermaid was deliberately aping the old, classic disney scores so if you listen to little mermaid there's a lot of cues that are very very influenced by almost like 40s or or 50s style of of scoring plus there was um what we call mickey mousing which is you know a character would move and you'd be (laughs) and you write it musically um and um i think a the, the songs and b the innocence of what I did is part of what completely captured people with Little Mermaid, um, and you know. So I tell the story when we went to the Oscars for Little Shop of Horrors for Mean Green Mother from Outer Space. We're sitting in the middle of this enormous row at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, and Levi Stubbs comes out and sings a song and brings the house down, and I go, I get excited. Oh my God! Then I sort of look at my pocket for the people I want to thank. And and Howard's hand just comes over and goes, you can relax. You're not getting any awards tonight. (laughs) Um, So, okay. (laughs) But when we went to the Oscars for Little Mermaid, there we were right on the aisle. Um, Yeah. And um, we won. Can you, Um, sorry, I was just going to say, can can you explain? So you, you come from the theater world and then you you go into making this film little mermaid which by the way totally changed the future of disney films you guys revolutionized what that is and and the music in it but how does your process change when you go into doing a film versus a stage play because obviously this has to be animated so it's not like the normal gig of a composer where you come in at the end and and write a score you're you're almost writing the story with or you are writing the story well yes I'd like to say now. However, when you're writing a a film musical, if you're if you're the, a songwriter, and you, when you're writing the songs, you're the king. <laughs> when you're writing when you're writing the score, you're the maid. <laughs> you're basically cleaning up. I was actually going to ask about your enjoyability factor on those two. In other words, you you kind of articulated it there, which is after that Little Mermaid experience of writing the score and figuring it out and doing how how you do it have you found equal enjoyment and maybe richard Kraft would call me up and say don't let him answer this. no in scoring not, yes the answer is yes i'll tell you why um 
songwriting is you're trying to uh, to grab a gestalt in a moment and constructing something that that moves story forward that that uses music and, and lyrics in a, in a very specific way to tell the story you do that song by song um and it tends to be a very interactive everybody giving their opinion and, and, and feedback and, and dealing with people's expectations big time um when you're writing the score once you're in the process of writing a score it's you're almost like in your own monastery it's like you block out the world and and for like i don't know six weeks or whatever it is it's just you and that film and and the director but you're really embedding yourself in every moment of the film in a very different kind of way. And I'm, in a sense, I'm being the agent for the songwriter in being the, or not the agent, but I'm being a, a catalyst for the songwriter to make sure that the themes emotionally and musically that are established in the songs are carried through and really um, uh, drive the picture. Perfect. And so I yes, I, I, I love scoring. Um and to be to be very bluntly honest, in a lot of cases, um that especially with the way the finance the way finances of the business works, sometimes scoring the movie is the best way to actually get your to get paid. Yeah. Um it's uh it's a very important, huge job. Um and it's very different than being a songwriter. And to me, it's always now with Newsies, as you mentioned, I did not write the score. Um, that was um, Jack oh, Redford. Uh, Jack, Jack Jack Redford. Yeah. Um, who I he did a great job. I loved working with him. But but going back to my 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 question, how early on are you in in the process? And are you in the room with the writers? Because not only are you writing songs for characters on screen, but you're incorporating so many characters into the song. So you kind of have to have a feel for all of these different characters and what punchline they may add into one of your songs or something like that. Right. I imagine the songs change a lot over time too, right? With adding those in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's it, essentially as you write the, the songs, you're sort of embedding threads stylistic threads into the score and a lot of them are very specific you know having a calypso thread for sebastian is a huge color to to pull through the rest of the score having that moving theme for ariel that da 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 da, da which is basically the flow of water it embeds something that's, that's memorable that you you put right at the top of the story and it carries you through the entire picture. But I liked hearing this, that you're actually, you're setting actually a whole tone with, with some of these choices, musical choices. Oh God. Yeah. It's all about that. And it's a, and the thing about, for me, at least, uh, writing a stage or film score is you are 
essentially ushering people into a world and a world that ideally is defined by the musical choices. And, um, and of course the words as well, but you know, if it's going to be international, those worlds, are gonna, they're going to go from language to language, but the music is going to remain. And mm. for me, I always want to find a unique world for each of the projects. So, you know, going into Little Shop with da 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 da, you know, bubblegum rock and roll, I, and and the Phil Spector influenced, uh, you know, songs. You get the sense of the world you're in with Little Mermaid having calypso and 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 the aerial theme and a little bit of the Brechtian viol for. I never uh, thought of Ursula that as water. Again to this moment that's incredible uh, da, 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 that water da, da, da. analogy yeah. just that's just wonderful that was where when and i then went which is, others i mean beauty and the beast i'm thinking is there is you, there a is there a a beautiful or a bestial <laughs> well harmonic that that i'm unaware of well in a way but beauty and the beast really is is pulling on classic european classical music it's pulling and it's if you feel the look of it, it's very, you know, old Bavaria, like like going back to Snow White and Cinderella. So beauty is is again very classical Disney. And I I drew on um uh a, a classical music. It's, you know, Belle is very much in a classical vein. There goes the baker with his train like always The same old bread and rolls to sell Every morning just the same Since the morning that we came To this poor provincial town Good morning, pal! morning, monsieur It's actually influenced by Beethoven um, And by a very specific a specific Sort of, it's, it's a wink at Beethoven's Sixth Symphony Prologue is a wink. The pastoral. Um, and, and just by a little, there goes the baker with his tray like always. So it's just a little, a little homage. Um, you look at the the, the prologue very much. You know, Jeffrey Kasselberg fell in love with having the chansons Carnival of the Animals at the top of the movie. I, in order to ha not have that literally put in there, I need to. Re reflect that and I did with the with the prologue music um, you have the classic Maurice Chevalier Boulevard style of, of uh, Be Our Guest Be Our Guest Be Our Guest Put our service to the test Tie your napkin round your neck Sherry and we provide the rest uh, and again Sigmund Romberg operetta with um Gaston. As a specimen, yes, I'm intimidating. I Gaston. So these are, yeah, these are, are deliberate. I want to stay in the world and stay consistent to the world. Then when you get to Aladdin, really, our take was, it's yes, it's 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 an Arab story. It's it's an Arabian fairy, you know, tale. And but our take was. We're doing the Hollywood take 
on uh, on the Arabian Tale, which is very much like the Hope, Bob Hope and, and Bing Crosby road pictures. Very, you know, a bunny picture um, with with a big Hollywood entertainment patina to it. Um, so that was the so a very exaggerated view of. I come from a land, from a faraway place Where the caravan camels roam Where it's flat and immense and the heat is intense But you go right on the surface to make the point But then, then you're going into Which is very like Fat Swallow or something (laughs) But to find those colors, deciding on those colors And using those colors in a way that makes people even though they don't know it, it's reminding them of threads. And it's, you know, music is a vocabulary and you're playing with the vocabulary that people understand on a gut level. So you always try to find that kind of subtext. With Pocahontas, there wasn't really that subtext to draw on. So it really went much more literally into American Indian influences and English influences. We have to take a quick break, um, but I have a, I have questions for uh, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and we also want to ask you a little bit about the new Little Mermaid um, when we come back. Stick around; we'll be right back. Hey, it's Matt Schrader here. If you like Score the Podcast, you're going to want to check out More Score, our new Patreon show for Score superfans. What's Patreon? Well, it's a website and an app that lets fans crowdfund the type of extra content you want. And now More Score has it all on video. You can listen or watch right on the Patreon app. More Score already has the life stories of people you know, like Kenny and Robert from Score the Podcast, as well as bonus features, hangouts, and yes, original interviews, like Carlos Rafael Rivera from The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. Did you know he had to throw out his score and start fresh? More Score gives you insight into the film score world, and it's a beautiful addition to those of you who just can't wait for another episode of Score the Podcast. Best of all, more score is year round. No more off season. Go to patreon.com slash more score or download the Patreon app and search more score. Hi, this is Max Richter. You're listening to score the podcast. And now let's go back to the show. Taylor's oldest time. Welcome back to Score the Podcast, presented by Spitfire Audio. We're here with Alan Mankin. So, Alan, I saw a story that uh, Angela Lansbury told about this song, the Beauty and the Beast theme, that she sang this song in one take after a bomb scare. Can you, do you remember this day? Do you know anything about that story from your perspective? I don't really remember. I, I remember something about a bomb scare, but it was, you know, um, I don't remember much about that. Um, there was a bigger, for me, there was a bigger subtext at the time, um, which was I knew and, and others didn't know that Howard was terminal with AIDS. And he, he was a rail. He was in the studio so weak, um, but putting up a brave front 
um, that I remember intensely. I remember, you know, have David Friedman at that point conducting the orchestra at um, RCA Studios in, um, in Manhattan, and we rehearsed the uh, the orchestra. And when we were ready, Angela wanted to go out there and just sing it down with the orchestra, you know, for for reference. And they said, "Well, just in case, why don't we run the tape?" Um, and yeah, it was it was perfect from front to back. Obviously, we followed up with other versions for safety, and I think maybe there's a line here or there that we took from other versions. But yeah, it was so incredibly moving, and we did two on the same day. It was Angela Lansbury doing Beauty and the Beast, and um, um, uh, Jerry Orbach doing Be Our Guest. And it was it's just an electrifying day. The story that she told, just so I can, if people haven't heard the story, but she, she says that she was on her way to New York on a flight and there was a bomb scare. And her, oh, flight, was right. getting, her flight was circling and she almost was late. And I don't know if this, the studio executives couldn't get a hold of her, but there was, there was a big confusion. And, and she says that she nailed it in one take off of adrenaline from, from being freaked out oh. by this. Well, yes, I, I, but Angela always nails it because Angela, a, 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 in the moment, Angela Lansbury is magical. She's wonderful. The heart and the class and the and the everything about her, the beauty, um, is right there. So, but yeah, I, I love that story. There's another story about Angela, which was what we Angela turned us down for playing that role because they they sent a demo to her. Of the song, he says, "I don't think it's for me." And I said, "What, what are you talking about? Which which demo did you send?" He said, "Well, we said yours, of course, because we had done one with Howard, which was much more half-spoken, and one with me, which was tale as old as time, very pop-oriented." And I said, "Oh no, 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 no! Send her Howard's version." And she heard Howard's version. And she went, "Oh, I get it. Okay, fine." And, and she did it. You know, Tim Rice says never send an Alan Menken demo with him singing because it'll be better. And <laughs> your voice and your performance will be Tim better than that. anybody who's going to listen to it. And they'll be scared oh, away by hearing Tim. your interpretation of your own song. Tim so is, maybe that's yeah. what it was. He's a very sweet man. Are you involved in casting um, characters for, for identifying, helping to identify voices like that? Yeah, I, 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 listen, I'm entitled to, and back then I was more involved than I am now. Um, I will tend to be very involved with casting for a stage production at the first casting, because you want to set the mold for what's to follow to a degree. Um, and certainly early on, for the animators, we were we were very involved, and Howard was extremely involved as as, as much as he could be, um, given you know his the health situation, and um, the our initial um, mold for Mrs. Potts was remember upstairs downstairs was Mrs. Bridges. They wanted that <laughs> Mrs. Bridges from upstairs downstairs, and then um, of course. Angela was a, a, a perfect embodiment of that. Perfect. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, I remember I had done this show Kicks with, you know, 
and Richard White played one of our leads in that. Richard White became our our guest on. Um, so it was really just just about getting the right voice, and it was not for star casting particularly. What about when they do cast? I was just going to say, who yeah. isn't known as a a singer? In other words, there's you know, I we both Kenny and I talked about this, which is of course you get Angela Lansbury, and she doesn't one take. Well, she's performed every night eight times a week singing in one take in tune she understands it yeah there are actors who shall go unnamed who have starred in many of the films who aren't known as singers well I'll, yes yes i'll give you an example of of, of a good example of so uh, danny devito played philocates phil in in hercules and we had the song um one last hope and danny came in mm-hmm. and goes oh no and he, he, Danny's not really a singer, but I knew what da- I, I had, all I had to do was tell Danny one name and I, and I knew he'll get it. I said, Danny, Jimmy Durante, just to, to Jimmy Durante. I'm down to one last hope, and I hope. Whoa! There goes my old son. I'm down to one last hope, and I hope it's you. Though kid, you're not exactly a dream come true. For, you know, for actors who don't sing, um, now th- there's also the example of Mel Gibson when he played John Smith, where <laughs> he was, first of all, Mel had was just giving up smoking, so he was already like, <laughs> um, <laughs> he was very game, uh, and, and I liked working with him. But it was it was like his patience was a bit thin on that one. Is it not an option though? Because like for example, with Aladdin, it was Scott Wigner. Is that how you say his name? Uh, the vo- he was yes. the voice of Scott Aladdin. Scott Weiner. 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 Yeah. He was the the boyfriend on Full House. I think notably was his his claim to fame. But he was brought in to do Aladdin, but he didn't sing. Was there a a period where you you tried to get him to sing and then it realized like we need to go a different route how does that change yeah i know we try i think we tried a little bit also the same thing with jasmine in both cases um we got you know brad kane and leia salonga to do the singing and we had a but I, the you know the voices same thing with pocahontas one person speaking one person singing judy kuhn um mm. uh they were both you know at the the working uh paradigm then was okay just get one to speak one to sing make sure they match and we're fine and it was fine is that a tough conversation to have though like to tell the actor uh you're not really a singer so we're just going to bring somebody in i wouldn't know because (laughs) thank god thank god i can fob that conversation off on uh chris montan or oh um, that's so great chris one of the directors (laughs) And Chris is great at that, by the way. He is. He's the ultimate diplomat and ambassador. Uh, yeah. He said something earlier that I just thought it's a, it's a very subtle, it's a fine line when you play a song that's, that you said, this is a little Maurice Chevalier or it's a little Jimmy Durante, and you present it, it's a very subtle sometimes whether someone could turn to you and go, really? You know, that's too much in a very particular zone and yet you had a way and you have a way of crafting it no pun so that it actually works in the style but i can imagine how many times you've played songs for people 
I mean, so many songs that there was a moment of, are, are you really going to pr proceed down that path? And you had to be convincing. It's just yeah, a really I, wonderful uh, approach. Well, sometimes, sometimes the best approach is go for the for the bleeding obvious. Go right uh, at it. Yeah. Um, and have faith that you, as a writer, will have something intrinsically yours that will come with mm -hmm. it. But don't try to reinvent the wheel when when you need a moment where you're basically going to go. I want the audience to know right away. This is what the, the number needs to do. Last thing you want to do is don't 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 make them work to get into the number. Make it as I love direct. That. I mean, be our guest was an example of that. I I gave Howard the piece of music, da 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 da, da, da which I just played off the top of my head. We had, I remember thinking, Kevin for little girls, and it's very it's very French, and it's very kind of. French, even the melody, it's almost like can can, and there's a feeling right away. And and it's a really stupid piece of music, stupidly simple, and it's it's designed to be the most easy trampoline for Howard's lyrics to bounce off of. I, I you you want to establish that where it's, it's French Boulevard, and then get out of the way. I'll give you another example of, um, by the way, of of using a a person as an ex example to just nail it. Uh, we've said this before, and it's, this is in the, um, well, I don't know if it's in the Howard documentary, but we're doing in Beauty and the Beast, new and a bit alarming, when, in, in, when, when Belle sings about the beast, new and a bit alarming. And Howard, who at that point could barely speak, he, could, he, could, he was too sick to be in the studio. He was on the phone lying in a bed as we were working. And he said, somebody said, Howard wants to give a note. Everyone had to be quiet in the studio. And Howard said, tell, tell Paige on that line, alarming, tell her Streisand. <laughs> New and a bit alarming. New and a bit alarming. And boom, right there. Um, being able to have those, those touchstone Oh yeah, I get it. So much of what I do is based on if I don't have an I I get it moment for somebody, I probably have failed. It doesn't mean every moment has to be an I get it, but you need those to, you in order you want to get someone on the ride. <laughs> there's got to be a I get what this ride is. I, you know, I'm going. I on. love that. I really love that. It's such a. Um... It's sort of you. You've opened a door in a way for uh, someone to walk through right away. It's not. A, it's not a mystery as to where we're going. You, you're saying we're going there, but I think you're also glossing over the phenomenal talent it takes to nail that from the first beat. I mean, that's it's directing. I, I'd like to imagine. Completely. Oh yeah, let's do it that way. But then the let's do it that way is not as easy as you're saying. Yeah, no, let's I'm. Just do I, a I, I, I'm good it's, at what I do. I, I know. I I I I, I, I won't <laughs> deny that. But uh, that's re it's really amazing. You do remind me of one other thing, though. When you said you know Har Howard would come back with the lyric, and you you provided a trampoline for him. 
Was there a moment, because I actually had the experience with Howard of watching him rewrite a lyric on the, on the couch at the record plant, he was sitting while Les Poissons was being recorded. And he would say, wait, 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 I got a better one. And each yeah. successive line was funnier than what we just recorded. It was, wh which one do we save? It, he was so fast and brilliant. Did you have the experience of giving him a, me a melody and having him come back that, and you laughing out loud or just saying, oh, God. this is. Yes, yes. <laughs> Gaston, the whole concept of Gaston just had me on the floor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, uh, you know, he's proud of how far he can spit, that I use antlers in all of my decorating. I mean, we, we now take that, you know, for, for granted, <sighs> but the idea that Howard thought I use antlers in all of my decorating, decorating, just, <laughs> I could just fall over. Um, how, one thing about Howard, by the way, he was especially with his comedy numbers. He, the essence of Howard Howard Ashford comedy numbers, he's great at beating up his own characters. He basically savages them. Because you know, because with this, with the comedy song, you you want to feel smarter than the people someone singing it, because you want to laugh at them as you know as well as like with them, you know. So the fact that you're getting a a a song of tribute from a room full of morons to a complete Neanderthal <laughs> um, is very funny, and then. With that, with that, Howard Ashville, I, I use it, you know, every last inch of me is covered with hair. I mean, it's just hilarious. And so, yeah, I've had that experience a, a number of times with Howard where, and, and, but for me, anytime I sat in front of a Howard Ashman lyric was uh, incredible. And I had the experience, you know, Howard had, Okay, you know, as we know, Howard passed away before even seeing Beauty and the Beast. The only one he saw oh. was Little Mermaid. He never saw Beauty and the Beast. He never saw Aladdin. Um, and um, and Howard had been gone for a long time. And I was playing a, a, a D23 show. This was maybe, I don't know, six, eight years ago. I can't remember. It was right after Marvin Hamlet passed away. And for this musical smile, Howard and Marvin had written a song called Disneyland that was in the musical um, smile. It was a beautiful song. Um, and I thought, okay, it, it's, it would be, I should, I would love to, because I normally perform the concert of my own songs, but I want to perform this song of Howard's and Marvin's at D23. But I, you know, I want to be able to make it sort of my own to a degree. So let me just, Put the lyric sheet. In, I, I went on the internet. I downloaded the lyrics to to Disneyland. I knew basically how, how the song went, mm -hmm. and I sat for the for the first time in maybe twenty years in front of a Howard Ashman lyric. And and there was a specificity of this of this girl singing a, about her journey and and going to Disneyland, and I just wept. It was incredible because of the memory of what of just how much of his soul and spirit came through those lyrics uh it was it was it's just incredible
I wonder if the success of lyricists, I mean, you've obviously written with some of the greatest lyricists on the planet, but I do wonder when I hear this and know how incomparable Howard Ashman's lyrics are, does a Tim Rice or a Glenn Slater or a David Zippel think, God, I hope Alan thinks this is as good as Well, Howard's. maybe. Yeah, I, listen, when I was working with Chad Beglin, you know, on the on the Aladdin Broadway show, he was, oh, and, and, and of course, <laughs> uh, uh, Pasek and Paul Benj and Justin came in. And again, everybody, including me, is in awe of Howard. So it's, there's a lot of that. But, oh, my God, there are songs I've written with, with each of those lyricists that just blow me away. And they all have their own amazing essences. I'm now working on, you know, uh, the, the sequel to Enchanted. I'm back working with Stephen Schwartz again. Mm. And Stephen's lyrics are just knocking me over. They're so good. Um, oh, that's great. And working with, with Glenn Slater on this new project with John Lasseter, an animated called Spellbound. And, um, you know, so I, I have a, you know, I love the lyricists I work with. And, uh, and each, each relationship, you know, has different nuances to it. And I know you were going to ask me about, I think you were going to ask me about Lynn, right? Lynn Manuel. Yes. Oh yeah. On, on Little Mermaid. Yeah. Backstory. Right. Um, my sister uh, was an act actress and she was a fiddler and she her, she, her, she, her daughter grew up in Manhattan, went to the Hunter school. And I would constantly hear Jenny, my, my niece went to school with this little boy named Lin-Manuel Miranda. And I said, Oh, this, he's, he's unbelievably obsessed with little mermaid. And could you sign this for him? Or <laughs> he has a question about this. And there was just like this test, little bit, Manuel Miranda. Um, and years later, I mean, Lynn's named his son, Sebastian. Um, and, uh, uh, Sean Bailey, I think saw an interview and suggested, why don't we, maybe you and Lynn should collaborate on some songs for the movie. I said, wow, that was, this was after Hamilton. Um, and um, and I had met Lynn. I mean, I had gone to, as soon as in the high school, I went to see Lynn. What a, he's a wonderful, incredible talent, and I loved him as a person. And so we we collaborated on five new songs and had an absolutely great time. That was a challenge because our styles are so, you know, he was like when he would try to do a Mencken type of song, so to speak. He was like, no, going, oh, this is. He even in some interviews talked about how intimidated he was about following in Howard's footsteps. And then when we did a Lin-Manuel Miranda kind of song, I was pretty intimidated in trying to follow oh. him in those footsteps. But, you know, we came up with some great stuff. I can't, I, I can't talk specifically about it very much because I'm constrained. We're now we're in the middle of filming. But we had a great experience. It was a, it was. Um, so much fun. The, the Little Mermaid cast, by the way, is stacked. It has Melissa McCarthy, Aquafina, David Diggs, Holly Bailey, Jacob Tremblay. I mean, there's a lot of singer. You're not going to have to worry about bringing in a singer uh, to to fill these parts. But I'm curious because it's live action. And I don't know. If pe people don't know how good a singer Melissa McCarthy is. I was just going to ask you: Have have uh, without revealing anything? Can you can you talk about? Uh, uh, obviously, if they're shooting, you've probably worked on a lot of the music by now we did it before the, just before the pandemic i mean literally we mm. were recording vocals and and i had to like 
then you know fly out because I didn't know if I'd get home from the UK. What a crazy time! Yeah, but is she? That was last last year. Were, were you when 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 you found out that she was going to play Ursula? Did did you know she was a singer? Like, what was your? Had you had any connection with Melissa McCarthy before? I just kept remembering when she did uh, this this wild sort of funny Pocahontas uh, Colors of the Wind on the Tonight Show, and had like confetti blowing in her hair and. And when I when I look back, I realized she was actually lip syncing. But um, no, I didn't know. Um, I had faith that we could get it. I I don't fret about that stuff too much. I um, we have a lot of uh, uh, we have a lot of insurance in in the ways yeah. we work. Uh, so that I I don't I don't operate from from fear or or being overly cautious i just go let's let's do it and um and i've been very blessed very you know very fortunate in terms of the results but if need be you help it along are you on set for these films now that they're live action i show up just you know they don't need me on set and um huh. and yeah, i the writers I, here well, so, no, they're not singing on set. They're just, first of all, they're just lip syncing anyway because we pre-recorded everything. Um, and to me, it's an indulgence because, you know, if, if everyone knows me, knows that I'm a compulsive multitasker. I just work on eight projects at the same time. Um, and it's, I, I just, I get, if, uh, you know, because you know that projects always go into lulls. So I want to always have something I, I'm working on. So, flying over all the films are being done now almost you know overseas or so many of them are um so i uh, no generally i'm not there i'd love to ask you um before we wrap up about uh working with robin williams obviously that was such an iconic character and i can't imagine the freelancing he must have done. He's such a, a, a character in himself and the voices oh. he can do and the range he has to, to do something like that. What was that like for you? And, and can you talk about just a little bit about your time working with him in the studio and, and taking the song that you guys wrote and, and bringing Robin into it and, and making it his own. Sure. Sure. Um, I had, first of all, an interesting backstory. Um, Howard went to college. One of his best friends was a woman named Valerie Velarde. Um, Valerie was Robin's first wife. Mm. So I, and I remember Howard talking about that, you know, when you know, Robin was sort of coming up, up, up that, that Robin had been married to, and then, of course, divorced from from uh, Valerie. So there was there was that little oh that's that sort of connection existed. Howard was gone by the time we were doing Aladdin, so he never was in the room. Um, as we were doing uh, the movie, uh, uh, Robin was working on Hook, so he has come from mm. full days uh, in this harness. And that's what he was doing at the time, the flying harness on the set to his house he was um, renting. I think it was actually Barry Levinson's house. I had a little spinet piano and we'd go to the house, me and David Friedman, and work with Robin on you know, learning the notes of the two songs. And Robin 
learned every note well alibaba had them 40 thieves Shaharazari had a... so he had every note because <laughs> that was my big concern can he can he sing the notes and can he sing like fats waller and everyone looked at me like <laughs> do we really give a damn we don't care alan let him just be robin williams i said no he has to sing the notes and sing and Ro and robin you know what and he came into the studio and I got the take, Alabama had them 40 things. Everyone said, and also took with Prince Ali, same thing. All right, Alan, are you happy now? I said, yeah, yeah, good. Great. Now we're going to let Robin play. And of course, 98% of what's actually in the movie is Robin just playing. And it was insane, amazing. You ain't never had a friend like me. No, no. I don't know where those tracks are, but oh my god, the stuff that just flew out of this, you know, brilliant mind. Um, and uh, and then you know, Robin would afterwards, really nice, quiet, uh, somewhat shy man. Um, we never got to know each other personally all that well, but sweet as as could be, and you know, brilliant. Do you think his character, the way he brought some of that stuff out, changed the way some things were animated on screen? Oh God, do I think? <laughs> yeah, um, to say the least. I mean, I mean Robin was what it, a joy. It, it's the mother load of of comic brilliance um unreal absolutely how great just contrasting that to to will smith coming in and, and playing that character it's it's an iconic role probably some pressure on will smith to deliver because a lot of people thought like yeah. how are you going to remake this but you were able to i mean if you listen to the the song versions the robin williams one is very like trumpet forward almost and the and the will smith one is very drum forward uh, playing into yeah. his hip hop ability. Here I go. Oh. Back up. Uh oh. Watch out. Uh. You done wound me up. Got to show you what I'm working with. Uh. Well, Alibaba, he had them for How do you work with Will Smith to sort of reinvent that, but also make the audience feel like this is the song that I, I still remember? Uh, it's a, such an easy answer. I just got out of the way. <laughs> just mm -hmm. get out of the way. I'm an architect. Genius. Go live in the house. Make the house your own. Um, it's, it was two influences. It was Robin influence, and then there's also Guy Ritchie influence. Guy Ritchie directing mm -hmm. a musical was already like a crazy concept, and Guy obviously wanted something very pop-oriented. Throughout the entire movie, everything much more you know, contemporary. So... Um, you know, this is the third time around for Aladdin. And, and for the most part, I'm just like, you know, other than the writing the new songs with uh, Benj and Justin, I really just kind of, my job was just get, more or less get out of the way. I was, I was going to write the score, the score, but the score was still going to be adaptation of themes and needed to provide what the director wanted tonally. Um, 
you know, and I just stepped back. That's that was true with Beauty and the Beast with Bill Condon, and it's true with Little Mermaid with with Rob Marshall. Um, the stupidest thing I can do is 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 try to jump in there and have a huge influence um, because it's, I've already had the animated. We already had the Broadway show. <laughs> Please, God, do what you want. I think make you've it, earned. I think you've well, earned the position of yeah. Make it fresh. It and make it less. God yeah. bless. Yeah. Yeah. Last thing I want is every like every version of Aladdin to have I can show. No, I want every every different one to have its own arrangement and to be fresh and new. And last thing I want is for it to feel like you took one and then moved it there and then moved it there. And I can to an extent reinvent it, maybe, but I'm so much better off allowing others to bring their influences to bear in it that's why i like the mindset of of a composer who does what i do and what those of us who work in musical theater or musicals in general be that we're architects we design a house that others live in and and design it really well put all the work into designing it i want the rooms in the right place I want that. I I need you know the stairway has got to come to the right opening. It's all got to work, and then people, you know, maybe there'll be a hundred owners of, of that house or for that blueprint, and everyone's going to do their own thing with it, and that's great. It's a wonderful analogy. It's beautiful because some people might want to hang paintings in the foyer, and some might want to put carpet up the stairs, yeah. and yet the. The bones of the house are there. Yeah, and and I I you, love that you don't want to control it, but there's you know there are lines like with, with Little Shop of Horrors, we had it, we had in L.A. a, a transgender Audrey, who who was wonderful, mm. um, mm-hmm. and you know sometimes it comes back to the estate, the Ashburn estate, and they feel a responsibility to try to, you know, protect um, Howard's legacy. For the most part, I just. My my philosophy about all this is just have fun with the material. It's not gonna nothing's gonna hurt me in what you do. Um, but it's in that first iteration where I'm gonna have the strong, you know, there I want to have the control. And then step is back. there an Alan Menken album ahead of us? And you might forgive me if this has been made already of you singing your greatest hits. There is not an album. Um, Why not? And 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 I'd like to own that. <laughs> I listen. I want to make it, um, and I've been talking about making it. It keeps getting very complicated. Um, a, because uh, as opposed to making it, you know, twenty years, thirty years ago, whatever, when Columbia wanted to make it, um, in terms of my material, first of all, this budget. Um, unless it's going to be just Alan making at the piano playing his songs. Um, I'll go for that. It's a lot. Of, yeah, it's a lot of work. um yeah my voice is not i had i used to have i had a great voice. i forgive i had a voice that would just go you know into the stratosphere i blew that voice out a long time ago probably you know just just the hercules demos alone probably um shredded my vocal cords um but yes the the short answer is i would love to make that album i probably will make that album at some point um and uh 
Yeah, and I'll enjoy doing it. I do my concerts, as you know, our friend Richard I've Kraft. I've heard you play, and yeah. yeah, so I think your voice sounds great. Um, I heard Thank something you. recently on that you recorded for oh. a oh. friend of ours' birthday, and oh. uh, <laughs> I thought you sounded great. I thought he should be making records, but okay, we'll do that you. on our next our next episode. <laughs> we'll do. Alan, how was it recording 12 songs back Yay. to back? Okay. All right. Thank you, so, Robert. It's a great like talking to, to you. That. Kenny, great talking to you too. Likewise. And uh, ho- hopefully you can get, uh, hopefully you can get Lynn Miranda, his EGOT. Is that the goal? Lynn Manuel? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I think he, he just might, needs he an Oscar. It. Uh, he probably, it's, I'm sure it's a, a shoe in for him. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah, good. but you know the egot is. I think it's a bit over. <laughs> it's it's a nice thing. Okay, it's 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 like a. I mean, a, like a lot of a lot of baseball players, I'm sure, have hit for the cycle, <laughs> but the, you know, not all of them are in the Hall of Fame. So, um, I think today we established a new benchmark. Though. <laughs> the egot. We have to find out. I think of the sixteen egots. Are you the only regot? I got it. Okay, so so by the way, there's a physical Razzie, and and I found out about it years, years and years later, just just like last year, I think, or a year before. I, and, and Rick from my office got in touch with him. I'll show this to you. Well, yeah, no, I will show it to you. Hold on. Um, and it arrived. And ladies and gentlemen, and, we are now watching Alan go to his trophy cabinet full of Oscars and Emmys and Tonys. He's returning to the camera with so Razzie. <laughs> That's what a Razzie looks like. And as soon as it arrived, all these different things fell off the Razzie because it's so cheap. Well, that's, um, I think, intentional. They, they make I, it I th- cheap. You know, it took four seasons of the show, but this is our first Razzie, Alan. Worst original song. We're so this honored the, to have a Razzie winner. This is the first time I've shown yes. it on camera, and I'm I'm getting tearful. Just this, I I'm moved myself and deeply honored. <laughs> oppor- opportunity, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, come to score the podcast, home of Razzie winners. This is great news. There you go, Alan. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show, working you, through guys. the technology, of course. Um. You, there's obviously no sign of slowing down. Alan has a ton of stuff coming up. Uh, Little Mermaid, and you said en- Enchanted sequel coming up? This, this Enchanted Spellbound, a stage musical of Hercules, which we did in Central Park, which is we're going to bring to uh, stage opposite to uh, Broadway. Um, and the stage musical of Night at the Museum. Um, and, oh, a, a a prequel to Beauty and the Beast, the backstory of Gaston and LeFou that's going to be on Disney Plus and wow. a, lot of, a lot of stuff. Well, we should probably let you get to work. <laughs> uh, and, and again, we want to thank uh, our sponsor, Spitfire Audio. Be sure to listen after the show today. We're going to play you a little demo cue of uh, some of the different packages they offer. You uh, can follow us. There's a number of ways. Twitter, at Score the Podcast. Instagram, at Score Movie. And Facebook, Score a Film Music Documentary. And don't forget to subscribe on Patreon to more Score. Tons more stuff year-round. We're going to be doing that uh, launching, of course, this season. So really excited about that. Thanks again 
Alan Mankin for joining the show. We really appreciate it, and uh, best of luck to all of the big projects you have coming up. Thanks, Alan. Love to you. My pleasure. Cheers. My pleasure. Hey, SCORE listeners, we are so grateful for the support of Spitfire Audio, our presentation partners. They collaborate with people like Hans Zimmer and the Bernard Herrmann Estate to build sample libraries that elevate your music. You're about to hear a musical demo of what that sounds like. But first, as an exclusive to SCORE listeners, Spitfire Audio is offering 25% off your first order of Spitfire products. All you have to do is use the promo code SCORE2021 at checkout. Again, it's exclusive to you, our Score the Podcast listeners. Just go to SpitfireAudio.com and enter promo code SCORE2021 so they know we sent you. Now, check out this demo cue from Spitfire's latest Abbey Road 1 release, Wondrous Flutes. Again, right now you can save 25% off your first order of Spitfire products using the promo code SCORE2021. There are tons of different packages.